Today on I'll Have You Know. Startup founders have to be a bit crazy in that they, they need so much focus and, and so much energy on their idea and how they move that forward. So they really have to be persistent and they have to be problem solvers and they have to deal with all kinds of things that they never knew were going to come. And some of that is lack of experience, but some of that is just the world suddenly changes and you're in a different spot. Lynn Lednicki graduated from Rice twice. And this spring, he's being honored with the Rice Business Outstanding Volunteer Award at the Alumni Reunion. From an undergraduate degree in chemistry to an MBA, he talks about the breadth of where his career has taken him and how transferable job skills can take you to places you might not expect. Today on I'll Have You Know, we're talking with Lynn Lednecki, uh, class of 1991 Rice Business. We want to thank you uh, so much for joining us today, Lynn. Oh, good. Glad to do it. I understand that uh, you've just been named Outstanding Volunteer and will receive an award at the Rice Business Alumni Reunion at the at the end of April. And so I know this means that you've, you've just been heavily involved, you know, since graduation, since your time at Rice. Can you talk a little bit about that and and this honor that uh, recognition you're receiving? Sure. You know, I'd start by by saying it is an honor and, and uh, I was really surprised and on the one hand, you know, it's a it's a great honor and I'm thankful for the recognition. And on the other hand, I feel like I'm just following in a long rice tradition of lots of people who have given back to the school in all kinds of ways. So I'm I'm humbled to be a part of that group. And I hope that I set at least something of an example for others who will keep up that tradition. I'm sure you've seen uh, some changes at the business school. I know it's grown a lot in its time and compared to a lot of other business schools of, it, of its stature, it's a, it's a relatively young business school. What have those changes been that, that you've recognized and what's it been like kind of watching the program grow? Yeah, so I actually have visibility almost back to the beginning because I did my undergraduate degree at Rice as well. And I was here in the, uh, in the 70s. I got out in 82. And I remember the Jones School then uh, from the basement of Herman Brown. Hmm. And then when I came back as, uh, in 91 as a, as a grad student, uh, we were in Herring Hall. And then, of course, 10 years or so later, um, moved to, uh, to McNair. So there have been a lot of physical changes as well as growth in faculty and students. And um, President Lieberman likes to say that when he first got here, which was in the early 2000s, that uh, Rice propped up the business school reputation. And now the business school propped up the, the, uh, the reputation of Rice, as well as Rice props up the business school. So a lot of changes over that time period. Definitely. I have met a few of other, I guess, double or dual alums. I'm not sure the exact terminology. Can you talk a little bit about, about your path and your choice to choose Rice and then and then be back again? Sure. So uh, normally they call us twice rice, um, <laughs> but I uh, was an undergraduate here. I got a degree in chemistry and I uh, went to work in that field. I worked for Dow and uh, was fortunate enough uh, in the six years that I was there to have three totally different jobs. And so that really reinforced the importance of learning and knowing how to learn and being flexible and taking the things that you learned and the skills that you developed in one job onto the next so that you could apply those same kinds of skills and, uh, and capabilities in different ways. 
But really for personal reasons, I didn't want to stay with Dow. I'd been out for about six years and decided to go back to uh, business school. And Rice was uh, certainly one of the top places on my list, partially because of the familiarity that I already had and uh, was accepted. So I did uh, I did come back. And for me, coming out of sort of a you know science and technical background, uh, my path was a little more to uh, broaden out the skill set that I had and create some additional opportunities. Although I didn't really know exactly what I was going to do when I got out of business school anyway. And by um, a whole series of um, coincidences, I wound up in the uh, the power business, uh, in what was called the independent power business. Uh, so these were companies like Calpine and Cogen Technologies and Cogentrix and Desdec was the company that I worked for. And that was really the beginning of, um, of a new industry. Uh, uh, and that was one of the things that attracted me to that. When I came out of uh, the Jones School, I had three job offers and I could have gone to work for uh, Big Oil. I could have gone to work for a food company, or I could have gone to work for Desdec, which is where I went. And that was an independent power producer. And what I liked about Desdec was it gave me the opportunity to be responsible for a small portfolio of what were essentially standalone businesses. And so that sort of general approach to be able to see everything, do everything was what attracted me to that business. And then that created quite a ride for the next uh, 20 years or so. Um, it was an evolving industry. It was um, capital intensive. It was cyclic. Um, it was commodity-based. And it, um, you know, I, I got to see both the upsides and the downsides of, of all of that through a number of different cycles. Um, and those played out in the policy arena as well as the economic arena. Um, so it's a lot of fun to do all of those different kinds of things. When I was looking at your your resume and your your work experience, one of the things that stuck out to me was it seemed like you had such a breadth of skill set. I see operations, M and A, uh, asset management, strategic planning. Now that you you sort of look back, um, the path that you know that took you here, are are you surprised at all by by the path? Um, I guess not really. Um, my real skill set, I think, is I know how to get things done. And I'm not that picky about exactly what the task is that I'm that I'm that I'm given. Um, I tell people a lot that I was always something of the utility infielder executive, so that when something came up and nobody knew how to do it or what to do with it, it was like, um, let's uh, let's give that to Lynn. He'll he'll do that, and that was fine because it gave me the opportunity, as I said, to do all kinds of different things. And you do develop skills and capabilities, and those are transferable. So that, uh, for example, when I was at Dow, there was an old joke about the difference between someone that had 20 years of experience and someone that had one year of experience 20 times. <laughs> and that's how I tried to, to think about things is can I, can I learn from whatever circumstance I'm in now and see how that's applicable to whatever the next challenge is, all very project-oriented, very much how do we get things done. So that, I think, has really been the theme. And really, from the beginning, as I said, three totally different jobs while I was at Dow in the first, uh, in the first six years. And 
that gave me the confidence. It's like, oh, well, I can do a bunch of different things. And then when I got to the Jones School, um, again, looking for that broader base of, of knowledge and experience, then it's like, okay, well, okay, I can do the finance stuff, or I can do the marketing stuff, or I can do the operations things. So all of those um, opportunities were, were there. And then along the way, I uh, figured out that particularly in business school, it's your it's your classmates that are so enormously valuable yes. in terms of that learning experience. The uh, the the, the Jones School will probably come come take my degree away for saying this, but business school is pretty straightforward. There are only a handful of concepts. They're not that hard to learn. You can learn them any place. The great thing about business school is you get it all in one spot in a fairly compressed period of time. But it's then it's all about the the classmates and the learning that you get from them as well. And once I graduated from uh, Jones School, you know, I just continued on that path, doing the same type of things in arenas all over the world and in a bunch of different areas, a bunch of different functional areas. So it was a lot of fun. I absolutely agree with with uh, your uh, synopsis of Rice and and your experience. There you go. So that'll be two of us that lose our degrees because of that. So. <laughs> When you were you're talking about, uh, you know, you worked in so many areas. Do you feel like there's more open mindedness within companies today about transferable skills, or has that always been there? Well, it depends from company to company. You know, every company has its own culture, whether whether you want to or not. People people talk about culture that's something that you create. Culture is not something that you create. It's something that exists, and it exists because of the uh, behaviors and the people in the organization. So it's really hard to say, well, everything is like this or everything is like that. But I think you're right. In terms of big trends, um, people recognize that the pace of change has picked up and uh, there are things that you know we would have never thought of 10 years ago or 20 years ago that now become a little more commonplace. And that at least plants a seed in your mind that, well, maybe it doesn't have to be done this way forever. So I think that's there, but it it very much depends on the organization and the individuals within the organization. So you hear a lot uh, complaining from the baby boomers about the millennials, okay, and work style differences. And in some places, that's a real issue. It's more of a cultural issue than a, a capability issue. In some places, it's not. And again, that's a function of the attitude in the organization. I remember uh, seeing a chart in one of our classes, and it sh- it showed a career trajectory of someone, and how maybe the first f- fifteen to twenty years, it's very much your your skill set, your specializations, and then the chart showed how much your soft skills take off once you reach a certain point. Can you talk a little bit about how that's come into play in your in your own career, and maybe some observations that you've had? Yeah, for me, I think soft skills have always been an important element um, in that, as I said, I work in a bunch of different areas and it's problem solving and you tend to work with lots of different people. And so you have to be attuned to how do I work with this person? What are the biases that they have in their perception of things? And how do I tease out of that the information that is, is really relevant? I mean, an easy example of that is when I was at Dow, 
I worked as a production engineer for a while. I actually wasn't an engineer, uh, but I worked with a bunch of operators, uh, field operators that had, you know, specific responsibilities. And for the most part, you know, they had a high school education and they were in very high skill, high paying jobs. And we had challenges with the production plant and the operators always had some theory about why this didn't work or that was going to happen if you did this kind of thing. And more often than not, their theory was right, but their explanation was totally wrong, that they didn't have kind of the, the skill set, maybe the technical background to understand exactly what was going on there, but they could they could connect the dots and say, you know, if you do this, that's what's going to happen over there. And then the explanation for why was totally wrong. But if you just focus on what your explanation is, is nonsense, right. you miss the fact that they're actually right. So maybe you should think about, okay, what is it? They, they got the right answer. They got there the wrong way, but they got the right answer. So what is it that we can go figure out that actually tells us something that's, that's going to be useful going forward? And it's those kinds of things um, that are social skills, not in the sense of buddy, buddy, let's go have a drink, or, you know, I'm great at, at small talk, but it's in knowing how to work with people and figuring out where their skills are and how to put together the right team. Yes. And it sounds like even um, interpreting some of the information that you're gathering, like in that situation and being able to do, do something with it, you know. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And again, for me, I'm a very action-oriented person, and I will figure out how to get there. So I'm always looking for patterns. And then I'll try to work backwards from what does that pattern tell me? Is there a way that I can construct that, uh, you know, a set of a framework or a set of facts or drivers around that that helps me understand? Because that's then tells me how I get to where I want to go, what I need to be able to do to get there. Can you talk a little bit about um, your role right now? I understand you're a partner with Newport, can you talk a little bit about the company and, and what you're doing? Sure. So Newport is a national firm. We have about 50 partners and all of us, like myself, have run businesses before. That's really the, the ticket to get into Newport. And we take that experience and perspective to small and mid-sized companies, uh, companies that are growing and they're trying to get to that next level. So they are often founder-led. Uh, very entrepreneurial in um, in their in their approach. A lot of times we work with family-owned businesses. Sometimes we have businesses that are uh, uh, controlled by uh, private equity or other financial sponsors. But they're all these middle market businesses that are trying to become great companies, but they can't quite get there with this with the skills and the capabilities that they have. So that's our focus, and uh, it's a fascinating market. To, to be in. Uh, sometimes we refer to it as the messy middle because they don't have the resources, they don't have the bench, they don't have the depth that a bigger company would have, but they have all of those same kinds of, of issues. And typically, when those companies go through some type of inflection point, which might be that they've grown really fast and now nothing works anymore, or that they want to grow fast, they can't quite figure out how to get there. 
or they need a capital infusion, if they're thinking about a, a, some type of M&A transaction, there's a generational change for a family-owned business to go from generation number one to generation number two. Something went wrong, they got off in the ditch. All of those things where you're not in that business as normal circumstance, that's when that owner, that CEO, that founder is willing to look around and say, you know, I don't actually have everything I need here and I could use some help. That's when we can be very helpful. So it's a wide range of um, skills that we can bring to the table. And for someone like myself, it's kind of a continuation of what I've been doing for a long time. Mm -hmm. It's very, here's a problem. Let's go take everything we have learned, everything we know, and let's try to solve a new and different problem. That's probably not really new and different, but for that owner, for that entrepreneur, for that founder, you know, it's it's existential. Right. So that's the uh, that's the approach. So it's a uh, it's it's challenging. It's fun. It's frustrating. Uh, all of those <laughs> things in one. Have you found commonalities regardless of the industry when you, when you're talking about helping these companies that are sort of in the middle? So there are commonalities, and a lot of that has to do with you don't know what you don't know. Uh, that's particularly pronounced in these uh, these lower middle market companies. Mm -hmm. And it's often the case that the, the capability set that they have access to is pretty small. People that have come up with the company and have been there forever. And there's a tendency to confuse loyalty with competency. And I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just that no one person is the right answer for every situation. Mm -hmm. And while you may have done a fantastic job for me at this point in the company's evolution, as we get bigger and more sophisticated and we need to do more things, you may or may not be the right person to do that. And even if you are, you probably have the exact same experience and background that I do. So you don't have that different set of experience to bring to the, to the table. So that's where these companies really struggle, is bringing in an independent view, um, a new perspective, someone that can question, someone that can point out there are other ways to do this, someone that has a little different risk profile. So that's a lot of what we, we can bring to the table. And that's not actually unique to middle market companies. You can see the same thing in big companies. And if you go through business history, the big companies that you know, stumbled or fell away, they made a lot of those same kinds of mistakes. We've seen um, many founders, you know, who, who are the CEO and become the CEO and then stay the CEO. We could name some big names and some have even been criticized for remaining in the role. Is it rare to find someone who could be a really good founder, you know, starting that company and can really take it to scale and and all the way is that are those two unique skill sets and and is it difficult to find someone who's really good at the whole? It, it is. We're we're all good at some things, but not at other things. And knowing where your boundaries are and knowing when you can bring in other people is is a hard thing to do. And that's where people get themselves in trouble. Uh, it's like what I said a minute ago. There's no one person that's the right answer for every situation. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you have to make decisions based on what you need at that particular point in time. And that means you need to go away. That's not anything personal about you. That's just a function of where the skills and capabilities are and how they match up with what those, those needs are. So it is rare, but 
it depends a lot on EQ. It depends a lot on your your aptitude um, and your willingness to say, I'm going to let somebody else do that. One of the things that we see a lot with uh, these smaller and mid-sized companies is a founder that recognizes that there's a gap in in his or her team and can do two things wrong and one thing right. So the two thing wrong is to say, one, um, I'm going to ignore that. I don't like that. I don't want to do that. I'm just going to ignore it. And now you have a gap in the organization. So that doesn't work very well. The, uh, the second thing you can do wrong is to say, okay, got to do it. I don't really want to do it, but I'm going to go fix that. And then you go do something that you're not any good at. That's kind of a double fault because you're doing something that you're not any good at, which means you're also not doing the things that you are good at. Yes. The third option then is to go get help. And that's, that's the hardest one. Um, so that's where uh, you see a lot of that kind of, a lot of that kind of behavior. And why I said somebody like Newport becomes helpful in an inflection point. Because if it's normal, they're not going to pay any attention to us. They're not going to see that they have a need. But when things get out of whack and it's not business as usual and there's a pain point that is painful enough, you'll start to say, eh, maybe I should get some help. We're recording here at the ION where we're surrounded by startups and so many different industries represented here. What, if you walk down the hallway here, what's some of the advice you would give some of these startup founders so that they can avoid, you know, some of these pitfalls that you've seen? Sure. So first of all, the startup founders have to be a bit crazy in that they, they need so much focus and, and so much energy on their idea and how they move that forward. So they really have to be persistent and they have to be problem solvers and they have to deal with all kinds of things that they never knew were going to come at them. And some of that is lack of experience, but some of that is just the world suddenly changes and you're in a different spot mm -hmm. and you either have much more advantage or much more disadvantage to what you're trying to do. So that stick to itiveness, that, um, that, that idea that you're going to make this work and somehow, you know, by sheer force of will, this is going to happen. That's part of the advantage of a place like ION because you have this, this collection of like-minded people that can then reinforce themselves in that very difficult psychological journey to, to get through that. So that's one thing. Most people self-select for that, so they don't really have to be told that, although sometimes it's helpful to be reminded that that is what's going on and that community around you that can help you do that is important. The, uh, the second thing I would say is get help. And in the startup community, that's usually doable because there are enough mentors and other people around who are willing to you know, pay it forward or pay it back, however you want to describe it, and they will offer a certain amount of advice. And I think most of the startup world understands the importance of those mentors or um, uh, examples that are, are out there that they recognize that would be a good idea and they're open to, to that. And fortunately, there are plenty of people around that will help provide that kind of experience and expertise. The challenge is once you get past that, once you pass the startup phase and you've sort of proven that this works and you have revenue and you have some profits, how do you scale? That's when things become uh, totally different 
in terms of the issues that you face and the, the tools that you need to be able to get to that next level. That's where somebody like Newport typically comes in because that's a very different environment. Scaling a business is different than conceiving and bootstrapping and getting it off the ground. Then how do you really move things to a larger scale and how do you deal with all of the competitive issues and all of the customer facing issues that come with that larger scale? And that is a question I hear a lot. How, how do we scale? Yep. And, you know, look, it's about staying very, very focused on your niche and your customer. And what does that customer really want? What does that customer really value out of you? Then how do you stack up against your competitors? And people often take too narrow of a view of who their competitor is because there's a tendency to say, well, I do this and those other people, they don't do that, so they're not my competitor. But that's not really the way the world works. And from a customer's perspective, that other person may very much be a competitor with you simply because the customer doesn't know your value proposition as well. But the net effect is the same. They're not your customer or they are not your customer in the way that you would you would like for them to be. So uh, that's that's the other thing. And then it's a, a matter of being very attentive to your business capabilities. And are you really delivering in a way that is going to make that value proposition come real for that that customer on a consistent basis. Those are the those are the, those are the real elements of your mindset. And then how do you put together the resources and the team to build those capabilities? I don't know how many of your companies that you work with are are from Houston or Texas, but where do you see things right now with uh, Houston and Texas? Is it one of the best places to start a business, to grow a business? And how have you seen that change throughout your career here? Yeah, so it, it probably has changed a bit. I mean, there's there's obviously much more of a focus on Houston as a, a startup place. And uh, as we say, the ecosystem around all of that, the ION is a manifestation of, of that notion. So compared to 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, yes, there's much, much more emphasis on this and it's more sophisticated and it's more deliberate. And I, I think that's all for the good. Um, there is a certain amount of uh, self-reinforcement um, so that right or wrong, everybody has the idea that, well, if you're going to do a tech startup, you have to be in Silicon Valley or now maybe you can be in Austin. Right. Or if you're going to do um, a medical startup, oh, well, you need to be in Boston. And there's some some truth to that in that you do build up scale in those particular places so that you have all the kinds of resources and people can stumble across each other. Uh, so there's a little bit of truth to that. But um, depending on what industry you're in, that may or may not be terribly important. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how things unfold over the next few years, because the last, say, two years, three years, we've really had this, this dramatic disruption around the notion of place and how place is important or not important. Yes. And it's going to take us a while to figure out what place is and means on a go-forward basis. And we're just at the beginning of that. So it'll be really interesting. Now, Houston, I think, will have an advantage in that regard because we were not 
the place, and now we become a place that is an option. Mm -hmm. And if you combine that with all of the, the deliberate things that the city is doing, then you've got opportunity. I have one last question, which uh, I think this question comes up some, and, it, and it's one I've even asked myself. I know you've had your MBA for a while. You've been out there. And the value of an MBA I, at times has been questioned, even among you know some entrepreneurs. What have you seen in and you know now as you as you look at your time at Rice Business and see the how the business school has grown, what is that value today? So I think first of all, um, an MBA does give you more tools for your toolkit. You had some of those before you got to school. Uh, you were going to develop some of those along the way. But as I said earlier, having that opportunity to get all of that in a compressed period of time, to apply that and to learn with your classmates along the way, it's, is a really valuable thing. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is the sense of network that comes with the business school. And it starts with your classmates because you probably keep up with your classmates, um, you know, either formally or, or informally. Um, as I mentioned, I, as I walked into the building today, I ran into one of my Jones School classmates who was just sitting out in the lobby doing some some work. <laughs> so that that sense of network and the value of that network, I think, is really uh, an important element that you begin to that you begin to learn. And then from there, it's this notion of knowing how to learn and knowing how to apply the things that you you learned in in school. Uh, and if you can continue to do that, then you're going to have you know, lots of opportunity for success going forward. So I think those are the key things that, that I think of um, when I think about the, the value around a business school proposition. Some industries, you have to have an MBA to get in. Some industries, it's not so important. But um, what I always tell people if you're thinking about an MBA is you know, think long and hard about why you want it, uh, because that will make it more valuable to you. I said that was my last question, but I actually have one more. Yeah. So uh, we are seeing, it seems like universities maybe get more involved in, you know, incubators, accelerators, co-working spaces like here at the ION and um, in discussions about solving the world problems, whether it's climate change, uh, whether it's medicine. Um, what is your take on that? What have you seen? And, and do you feel that it's critical that universities do kind of take that step and have that involvement? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's part of what universities should be doing. And really, if you think about things, the over the last two or three years, sort of the world as we know it has been totally disrupted. That's true socially. It's true economically. It's true politically. And that creates tremendous risk and tremendous reward. So we're all in that situation. What do you do about that? How do you move forward with that? And so universities think a lot about how do we position ourselves? Where do we build on the strengths and the capabilities that we have? Where can we have a real impact on the world? And to the extent that you can pick your areas of focus where you have some macro tailwind behind you, you've got extra opportunity. And so I think that's things like energy transition. There's a whole field around 
uh, medical frontiers. There's another field around urban issues, which is everything from sustainability and uh, reliability to education, to transportation, to housing. Um, and then there is this notion of the interconnected world. Maybe we're not going to be so interconnected. Um, that's something that we're all still trying to, to figure out. And those are all really big problems, and there's no simple solution to that. And whether you are a research university or you are a business school where you can deploy your skills and talents and capabilities in those areas, there's going to be great opportunity that goes along with that. Um, and then you pick up other trends, uh, digitization, uh, you know, those kinds of things that are, that are out there and become tools for those bigger areas of focus, then there's a lot of opportunity. And so, you know, while the disruption is not so fun sometimes, it's, it's also really exciting to think about what could be, and um, it's going to be really interesting to watch and see how things do actually turn out. Anything else you'd like to add? No, I just say thanks. It's uh, it's been uh, a pleasure to to do this, and you know, as I said at the at the very beginning, uh, in terms of you know the recognition that I get around being a volunteer, that's just something that I've done for most of my life. Like I said, following a, a strong rice tradition there, and I would really encourage all of our listeners to to do that for rice or for whatever your chosen cause is, uh, to be able to give back and to take a little different perspective and to, as the development people say, give your time, treasure, and talent to the things that you really care about because that's a, that's a very positive thing in my view. Well, we look forward to seeing you around Rice Business. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Thank you, Lynn Lednicki, Rice Business alum. Thank you so much for joining us. I enjoyed it. Thank you. This has been I'll Have You Know. Thanks for listening. You can find links and more information about our guests, hosts, and announcements on our website, business.rice.edu. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you find your favorite podcasts and leave us a comment while you're at it and let us know what you think. I'll Have You Know is a production of Rice Business and is sponsored by the Rice Business Alumni Board. The hosts of I'll Have You Know are myself, David Drugliever, and Christine Dobbin.